All right, Genesis 24, if you're not there yet, as we continue on, if you read ahead, you might have taken notice that Genesis 24 is quite a lengthy chapter. In fact, it's the longest chapter that we have in the book of of Genesis, and an interesting, basically one uh, long, continuous narrative that records for us uh, really a love story. In fact, the, this chapter here, I mean, a couple of different wonderful things that it uh, represents and gives to us in a literal historical narrative. One, it shows us the beautiful love story and narrative uh, of how to ultimately uh, obtain a spouse in a sense. And you have this beautiful picture of the son uh, who is off, uh, seems praying and meditating and waiting upon the Lord out in the field and and the father who takes initiative to send forth his servant to go and arrange and to search out a bride that would be perfect for him to bring to him and of course takes care of those arrangements. And I think it's a beautiful a picture, certainly a great illustration, a fantastic example for if you're still single this evening or you're raising uh, a child still, whether they be again, you know, in their early stages or in the stage where they're young adults now but not yet married. I mean, just great example here of uh, how God does have a plan and he has a purpose and there's a right way to go about it and and there's a wrong way to go about it. And certainly as believers, all the more we uh, want to make sure, as the Bible tells us, that we won't find ourselves unequally yoked. Uh, And I could probably, uh, within a matter of about five minutes, I'm sure I get about a dozen different people who I know uh, to gladly plead with any young person or any single person, be that as may, to, to explain to them, listen, Uh, I went that route, and trust me when I tell you, what looks wonderful now on paper in your infatuation or your emotions or your attraction, uh, boy, it really creates uh, a real burden long term that if you can avoid signing up for that, I would would gladly encourage you not to do that. And, And so I think it's just a very vital thing because our culture has really created a lot of confusion about marriage and I think this is a great chapter to to demonstrate that. Uh, by the same token, it's also a, a wonderful chapter that teaches us about how to follow God's leading. Uh, as you go through the chapter, uh, hopefully we can point out to you, and if not, just be asking and looking from the Lord yourself that the Holy Spirit would show you. There's some really great examples, even if you want to go back and maybe with that perspective to study this deeper on your own and, again, let the Holy Spirit reveal to you just a lot of great principles in here about how to follow the Lord's leading for your life. And, again, I think that's an area where a lot of times uh, as Christians, uh, people, they, they desire to follow the Lord, and we want to follow the Lord's leading, but we also realize a lot of times that that's a little more challenging maybe than what we would have expected, and uh, because of that, we want to make sure we're, we're not you know, being misguided by just our own desires or ambitions for something. And, and it seems that, I don't know about you, it's like there there's constant voices and all kinds, like the radio, you know, there's all kinds of frequencies going on and being able to tune in uh, the right frequency, which is the Lord himself, and to make sure that we're not being misguided by the devil or we're not being misdirected by our flesh and and I think certainly just a, a very important thing, a lot of great lessons in here as you look at this narrative unfold of how this servant, uh, really this servant of the father, Abraham, uh, really demonstrates what it means to follow the Lord's leading and how ultimately he discovers exactly what is the intended plan 
of the Lord. And, and one other thing, just by way of, again, everything in the Old Testament, we want to look at it from the perspective of seeing through the lens of Christ, because Jesus said, you know, we know the Bible tells us, as it says in Scripture, lo, in the volume of the book it is written of me. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, when we get there, we'll see that everything written in the Psalms and the prophets and everything in the Old Testament Scriptures, it says from Moses all the way through, at one point Jesus expounded in all things concerning himself. So as we study the Bible, we always want to be looking for Jesus on every page and realizing that much of what's in the Old Testament, though there are literal historical narratives and feasts and so forth, God's heart is ultimately to reveal a person and to reveal the person of Jesus. And take note as well as we move through this, be looking yourself, uh, and hopefully we can point out a little bit as well, there's this beautiful, really, typology and foreshadowing of here uh, of how the Father in heaven seeks to obtain a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that the Father looks to an unnamed servant. Very interesting, because uh, the servant is unnamed. He, he, again, he, and he doesn't draw any attention to himself. There's no attention drawn to himself. And the servant goes out on behalf of the Father to obtain a bride for the Son, in the same way that the Father sends out the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit never speaks about himself, the Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself. You can tell when a ministry is of the Spirit because there is attention being drawn to Jesus, and the focus is on Jesus and glorifying the Father and the Son. And the Spirit of God tells Jesus tells us that about his ministry in John chapters 14 to 16, that when the Spirit comes, he won't speak of himself. There's no drawing attention to the Spirit, and I think that when the Spirit's ministry is happening, there's no glorification of the flesh of man either, that, that God doesn't share his glory with any man, the Bible says. Uh, and we have this unnamed servant going out, doing nothing but speaking, you'll see, of the Father's glory and, and, and his great wealth and how the Son is the heir of all those things and speaking about the Father and the Son and seeking to find and woo and win a bride to then bring back to the Son, even as that's what the Spirit of God does. He's sent out into the world to find a bride for Christ and to ultimately bring that bride into relationship with the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I just, again, kind of set those things before you as a backdrop as we move through the narrative to, to realize some of those things. Now, at the time we, we read this, it opens by telling us in verse 1 there, or chapter 24, that Abraham was old and well-advanced in age. And that's not an understatement. At this time, Abraham is about 140 years old. Uh, Sarah has just died, if you remember in our recent uh, chapter. <clears throat> Abraham, about 140 now, which would put Isaac, his son, at around 40 years old. Uh, and it says, Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Again, in, in all things. And again, the Lord had blessed Abraham. It's interesting as well, as you go through the narrative, as the servant begins to speak to, uh, ultimately to Rebecca and to speak to the family of Rebecca about Abraham, the servant himself continually draws out the reality that Abraham's blessing in his life is not because of Abraham's great business savvy, it's not because Abraham was a really smart guy or a really talented man. The attention is continually drawn on the fact that Abraham is blessed because God has blessed him. 
uh, in the same way in all of our lives. You know, the, the Bible tells us, you know, everything that we have we receive from the Lord. So why do we so often boast as if somehow we haven't received what we have from the Lord? Anything we have in our life, you know, gifts, talents, monetary blessing, it's all from the Lord. And, and, and I just love the way that it reads here. Abraham was old. And it says, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. God's blessing was on his life. And Abraham, at this point, senses now the need. Again, his son is going to be the heir to the messianic promise that he needs a wife, that he needs someone to be a life companion, even as he himself had, so that the seed can be perpetuated through his line. So Abraham said to the oldest servant, now, again, unnamed, and I think the Holy Spirit, again, does that purposely. It's not like God left out a detail and oops. So sometimes what God leaves silent, I think is best to leave silent. You know, we can speculate and people do. Well, maybe is that Eliezer back from Genesis chapter 15? I think if it, if it is Eliezer, God wanted us to know it's Eliezer. He would have just said it's Eliezer. <laughs> uh, God left it silent. So sometimes I think when God's silent, it's better to be silent. I don't know about you. That's a human mistake we often make. We feel we need to say something when sometimes maybe we just shouldn't say anything. And when God is just silent on something, and there are things in the Bible that God's silent about. I don't know about you, that it kind of bothers me sometimes. I wish, Lord, why are you silent regarding this issue? Well, that's his prerogative. So if God's silent regarding an issue, I don't always feel compelled to have an answer for every single person and every single question. If God's clear about it, God's clear about it. If God's silent, then God's silent about it. And again, th that could pertain to any particular issue. God has certainly given us enough information about eternity, about how to obtain eternal life, how to have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ, how to live a godly life. God has clearly sufficiently supplied enough for us, but yet there are plenty of areas that we just we don't have every answer to every question and every detail supplied. So the idea of the eldest or oldest servant would be, again, the most reliable servant. This is a reliable servant. He had been with Abraham, ruling over all that Abraham had. Notice verse 2. So is the one with the greatest responsibility, his most trusted, reliable servant. And Abraham says to him, please put your hand under my thigh. And this again was just a, a, a cultural way of, of making an oath is what you're going to see here. And there's connections to that, which are unnecessary to explain. Keep it uh, you know healthy here in the room. And he says, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not notice, take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. So Abraham has a burden on his heart to arrange to get a wife for his son. And again, in that culture, it was much more accepted. It was just common practice that the parents were very heavily involved in arranging the marriage relationship for their children. In some cultures, that's still in existence. And it's interesting that the more you see that in certainly ancient cultures and even in some present-day cultures, you tend to realize it stems from a particular perspective that they have towards marriage that they recognize that marriage isn't necessarily just about physical attraction and 
and you know the whims of emotion and lustful desires but that there is something about a long-term long journey lifelong commitment where two people say but not just say but actually understand for better for worse for sickness and health you know for richer before till death do us part and 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 that there's something much deeper that you know that beauty and and these kind of, they last it lasts for a moment but but there's something that must be deeper about commitment that lasts the long distance journey so because of that they put the focus on things like character and 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 an upbringing and so therefore you had parents very deeply involved saying you know what i want to i want to make sure that we find someone that was raised in a way that is going to be consistent with who you are and what god's plan and intention is for your life and and parents were very serious and from a greater place of wisdom and understanding again having raised a child for 18 years, 20 years, 25 years, if there's anybody that probably has a really good insight into hey, who would be a right match for my son or for my daughter, who's going to have a better insight than the person who from day 1 was tending to the needs and raising and nurturing and culturing and in every way just working with that child and understanding their personality and their strengths and their weaknesses and and there was a whole perspective behind this and here you find Abraham i find it very beautiful being directly involved in the arrangement and the pursuing of trying to find a wife a spouse for his son now no doubt i don't think this was against isaac's will either uh it seems to be isaac being completely compliant of the whole thing it's almost as if you recognize in isaac that he realizes the benefit of his father's wisdom and therefore allows his father to be very involved now, i don't know they may have had a meeting and i'm sure you know isaac might have supplied a few ideas you know prefer blonde over brunette or something and you know if dad if we're going to look you know here's but it's interesting to me that again as a 40 year old man as a 40 year old man here is isaac he has so much respect and i think this is the beautiful thing he has so much respect for his father that he in a sense complies with allowing his father to have a great deal of involvement in helping to select the proper spouse that would be a completer and a complement to his life and i think this is a beautiful beautiful thing again i understand we live in a culture that is different but i think it is a beautiful thing when when a, a parent has some level of involvement in the the selection of the marriage partner that their son or their daughter ultimately commits themselves to i think it is incredibly wise i think again th- there's a balance in these things but i think it's a beautiful thing when a parent has that relationship with their child and there's that level of respect and it's an even more beautiful thing when the child wants that and they desire that and they have a level of respect of their father level of respect towards them or that hey what do you think and 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 I, there's just a very beautiful thing that takes place and i think we'd have a lot more healthy long-term good godly marriages if more families would recognize the value of this uh, of this kind of partnership and working together rather you know again because i you've raised children many of you i'm in the process of raising children you know there's that natural well, get out of my life why why you be involved in everything and this listen they say that but the truth of the matter is number 1 deep in their soul they don't mean that 
you know, they recognize the value that you bring into their life. And it's wonderful to have that level of involvement that is just seen here. I just think it's just such an incredible, beautiful picture here. Abraham taking the initiative. He knows his son needs a bride. Again, what a great reminder. If you're here this evening and you're single and you're still desiring a marriage relationship to realize, again, your father's aware of the desire and your father in heaven is more than capable to do what is necessary to make arrangements and to take the initiative for you to ultimately make the arrangement that you can have a spouse if that be a part of his plan for your life. And here his concern, notice he tells the servant, listen, I want you to go get a, a bride for my son, a wife. But he says, I don't want you to take a wife for my son from among the daughters of the Canaanites where they were dwelling at. Why? Because they were pagan people. And there was all types of idolatry and their practices were completely inconsistent with the worship life of Jehovah God that existed among the family of Abraham. And Abraham realized that. So he said, look, I don't want you to find a woman from here because the, the pagan idolatrous system that exists that they've been raised in will just draw my son down and will pull him away from his healthy relationship with the Lord. So again, this wisdom as a father, he says, look, you know, the daughters of this world system where we're dwelling, that's not where I want you to go. But he says, even if it takes time, I want you to go back, go to my own country, to my own family and take a wife for my son Isaac from there. And the servant said to him in response now to this request, he said, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. So the servant hears this request. It's 500 miles back to Abraham's homeland. That's, that's quite a journey. And he says, okay, listen, I understand, master, what you're asking, but let's say I go all the way back there and, and I try and make an arrangement and bring back a bride for your son uh, and she's interested, but she doesn't want, says, well, then, you know, maybe she, well, I want to see this guy. I mean, you want to come back and <laughs> marry some guy I've never even seen before or met before. It's like they had little, you know, iPhones where she could just pull up a picture of him or something or, you know, not even Polaroids or something back then. And, you know, I don't think they had a little stone sketch they could do, but there wasn't much to offer. This was a two-month journey to a distant land to make a proposal to marry someone by way of arrangement that they've never even seen or met or anything. So he says, well, listen, let me just be realistic. What if they're not interested in coming back? Can I bring Isaac back with me? Can I then arrange to bring Isaac back to that land? And notice Abraham is very emphatic. He says, verse 6, do not take my son back there. Again, why? Because Abraham realized that Isaac being in the land where they were was Isaac being in the center of God's will because the call of God was upon Isaac's life. And him being in that promised land was the place where God intended for him to be. And he did not want the marriage relationship, and he knew that the marriage relationship, if it was of the Lord, did not have to be something to take him away from the call of God on his life. 
And I think it's a beautiful example of that. Listen, if you bring my son back there, he might ultimately just get infatuated with that land. And, and again, in his whims and emotions and attraction, well, this place is kind of nice and this is kind of better than the land where we've been living. So maybe I'll just settle down here and marry this girl here. And then what would have happened? He would have been outside of the will of God. And he would have been drawn away to a place where he was not called to be. And Abraham knew the call of God was on his son's life. And he said, don't you dare bring him back there. That it is, God would not work in such a way whereby he brings a bride, but that bride takes him out of the will of God and makes him forsake the calling of God and forsake the promise of God. And, and let me just say this. Whatever God's plan is for your life, if he's going to bring a spouse and a partner into your life, they should complete and complement the plan of God and the call of God and the will of God for your life. Not make you have to compromise and be drawn away from God's plans and purposes. So Abraham says, absolutely not. Do not take my son back to that land. And then he assures him with a word of encouragement. Again, Abraham is a man of faith and he has seen God work before. So he assures with a word of encouragement, the Lord God of heaven, Abraham says, verse 7, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying to your descendants, I give this land. Notice he will send his angel before you. He says, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And he says, if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from the oath only, again, do not take my son back there. So the servant, again, put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. He swore an oath, okay, I will follow your instructions. And again, Abraham reiterating to this servant, listen, I have complete confidence that God, who began this whole process, who drew me out, who gave me his promise, which is now to be you know, transmitted to my son as one of my descendants. He says, I have complete confidence that God's plan and promise is going to be fulfilled. And he has been faithful to me through this whole process. He has led thus far, Abraham is saying. Up to this point, God has led every step of the way. And he says, you know what? In light of that, he says, he will send his angel before you. Trust me, God will go ahead of you. He went ahead of me in my journey here all these years. He's been going ahead of me, and he says he'll do the same. And he says, look, if you find that's not true, don't worry. You're released from the oath then. And again, I don't think that's Abraham thinking that it's a possibility it won't happen. That's his way of just, again, encouraging the servant, saying, listen, trust me. You have nothing to lose, nothing to worry about. You just do what I'm asking you to do. You're going to see the faithfulness of God. And he says, if it's of concern, he says, if it doesn't work out, the bride doesn't want to come back, then he says, you'll be released from the oath. So the servant complies and goes forward with this process. Verse 10, it says, and then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed for all his master's goods were in his hand. Notice he goes with gifts and wealth and so forth as he travels and he arose and he went to mesopotamia to the city of nahor interesting remember nahor was abraham's brother again i think there's a part of this where you begin to see practical wisdom he realizes abraham says go to my land and take a wife 
for him from our family who has some understanding of the revelation of Jehovah God, because no doubt when Jehovah God revealed himself to Abraham in Mesopotamia, as they were departing, he and Sarah, no doubt they shared with the family about this revelation of Jehovah God and this calling they were going to follow. So he says, look, I want you to go to my family because there's some understanding there of what it means to have a relationship with Jehovah God. And as the servant leaves, he's heading to Mesopotamia. Interesting, it says he goes to the city of Nahor. Very likely it's called the city of Nahor after a guy named, guess what? Nahor. I point that out to say this. I think there's just real practical wisdom you see taking place. Okay, I'm going to Mesopotamia. How do I find Abraham's family? How do I find the and narrow down? There's lots of women in Mesopotamia. How do I narrow down finding the... Well, he starts by just being real practical. Well, let me go to the place where Abraham's family is kind of from. And he begins moving in a practical direction by just making practical steps of wisdom in kind of, in a sense, laying out a general, you know, frame of reference of, okay, let, let's use my brain here. And again, I say that because a lot of times I think, I think a lot of times believers have this idea that, that discovering the will of the Lord means that you just check common sense at the window and, and God doesn't work through the practical and, and they make discovering the will of God, I think, like overly mystical and and they think things are just so esoteric and it's going to be this mysterious kind of, you know, so, listen, God works through the natural. I find in the Bible when you read it that many times you see God doing things very supernaturally natural, that God works through natural means in supernatural ways. He works through everyday circumstances. Again, when Paul and Barnabas are commissioned by the Lord. It says that they, they, they it says, set up, separate unto me Saul and Barnabas to the work to which I've called them to. They know they're called to go out and to do ministry efforts and ministry labors. Read the book of Acts in chapter 13 and you'll see the first place they go to is Cyprus. Do you know why? That's where Barnabas was from. Well, where do we go? Well, I don't know where to go. Which, you know, where do you think we should go? Why don't we try my hometown first? And again, it just this mindset where connecting the practical, natural, common sense to the direction of the Lord and, and just how God was directing through those very things. So this servant goes, he travels now, goes to the city of Nahor. Again, nothing mentioned of this 500-mile journey. Probably took about two months, this journey. It wasn't just a short journey. This was a long journey to get there. Verse 11 says, And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time, notice, when women go out to draw water. Well, that makes a lot of common sense, too. Where do girls hang out? They hang out at the well. Hey, well, that's a good place to start. You know, why don't we go to the well? And, and when do the women go to the well? Women go to the well in the evening time because it's the coolest part of the day. They didn't go during the, you know, noontime sun when it was hot and excruciatingly, you know, painful to be under the noonday sun. They would go in the evening and they would draw water and they would bring it back. So again, just using common sense, you know, we're, you know, we're looking for one of his family members. We're looking for a woman. You know, where do women hang out? At the well in the evening. So he goes there now. He has these camels. He sits there. And verse 12, look what he does. This is incredibly important to follow God's leading. He prays. 
As he arrives there, he said, and this is interesting, the first recorded prayer in the Bible. There's mention of prayer, but here's the first recorded prayer of the words of someone's prayer. Verse 12, he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, notice, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And if she then, the idea is, adds to my request and says, sure, have a drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one that you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. So again, take note of some of these things as important elements, components of being led by the Lord. You see here, and I think this kind of, you see this up to this point thus far in the chapter, that what does this servant have a heart to do? He has a desire to do the will of his master. This has nothing to do with him wanting to obtain something for himself. He's not trying to implement his own desires. It's not, hey, what would be most convenient for me? You know, what, what would be my preferences? You have a man here, this servant, who has a singular focus. And his singular focus from verse 1 to this point as he's praying, you see it again and all the way through the chapter, is he desires one thing. He just wants to do the will of his master. He, he knows his master wants something done, and his heart is, I just want to do my master's will, and he has the faith to obey that, and he says, look, whatever it takes, whatever it involves, I just want to fulfill my master's desires. I'm willing to obey that and to step out in faith to accomplish that, and, and that's an important part of being led of the Lord. Again, how does God lead us? I think he leads us when we get to that place where we desire his will more than we desire our own will. And a lot of times those things, you know, can get very, you know, convoluted and mixed up in our hearts and, and we think we want to follow, the, you know, the will of the Lord. But the reality is, is we really have a strong desire for something. And God wants to bring us to a place where we come to that place in our heart where we say, Lord, I don't want what I want. Lord, what do you want? Lord, what's your desire in this matter? That Lord, I only want what you want for me. Again, whether it's in any area of life, whether it's in a marital situation, Lord, I, I only want what you want for me. Lord, who do you want for me? Lord, what would you have me do? Where would you have me serve? Lord, what's your desire? We may have preferences, and sometimes our preferences and desires may line up with the heart of the Lord. I, I think that does happen. But it's important to have that heart before the Lord when we first come before him, to really in purity of heart, I think, say, Lord, What's your desires? Show me your desires. I, I want to do your will. You see that in the heart of Jesus, you know, that he desired to do the Father's will. He wanted to finish the Father's work. This servant has a heart to want to do the will of the Master. He prays specifically. We see here not only just praying, but praying specifically, very specifically. He says here in this situation, give me success and then notice he kind of lays out a way to help discern the will of God here. He says, here I am by this well. And he says, let it be, verse 14, 
that when the young women come out, and I'm sure that he was looking for other things. It tells us later on that she was beautiful, that she was a virgin. I'm sure he had certain criteria, but again, here's these women coming out to a well. Well, what if there's multiple beautiful women? And what? how do I discern, Lord? How, how do I sort of narrow down exactly what you want for my master Abraham and to be a, a, a bride for his son? So he says... When I ask for a drink, and it would be very common when somebody asks for a drink at the well to graciously in hospitality say, here, you, you can have a drink of water. But he says, I'm asking when I do that, that she will initiate, notice verse 14, that she will also say, and I will also give your camels a drink. In other words, she's seeing that he had, it's going to say 10 camels would be willing to be generous and hospitable and, and servant-hearted enough to say, you know what, hey, can I also bless you by watering and, and, and taking care of your animals? Why? And he says, and if I see this, then I'll know. Then I will know. Now, now, why is that something significant? Because this guy's got ten camels, okay? He has 10 camels. Camels are known to be able, especially if they haven't drank water in a few days, to drink up to around 25 gallons at a pop. That's a lot of water, okay? 25 gallons at a pop. Now, this woman has a stone jug that they would use to fill up with water. Let's say her stone jug, two to three gallons of water. He has 10 camels at 25 gallons apiece, that's about 250 gallons of water. Her little jug carries about two gallons. That's a lot of trips. And if you've seen wells in the Middle Eastern culture, some of the ancient ones, if you've been to Israel and places like that before, a lot of times what they are is you actually walk down steps in a circular fashion to go down. You fill up a jug and then you walk back up the steps. So can you imagine how many trips... <laughs> This was no simple task. This would take a lot of time. I mean, this good woman, you know, big strong arms, and this was a, a woman willing to do some serious work. This was not a lazy woman. Most women would say, uh, here, you may gladly have a drink, and if you want to water your camels, by all means, you take the next six hours and fill up the trough for all those things. But this woman was industrious, and, and he said, you know, that will be a rare woman. A woman who will demonstrate that she's very sacrificial. She's very servant-hearted. She's willing to be generous and giving. And, and that would be very distinctive. And it would be quite a shocking thing. And he says, by this I'll know. And it happened, it says, verse 15, that before he finished speaking, so as he is still praying, in essence, in his heart, it tells us later on, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. So lo and behold, imagine that. He's at a well, he prays specifically, and lo and behold, the first gal that comes out, lo and behold, uh, it's a relative of Abraham's family. Now the young woman, it says, was very beautiful to behold. And again, the Bible lets us know that. Nothing wrong with physical beauty. In the whole process. And it says she was a virgin, and that was wonderful. She was morally pure. She had kept herself. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, and she filled her pitcher, notice, and came up. Shows you that it was one of these wells where you walk down circular steps. She brings her pitcher back up. 
And the servant ran to meet her. And okay, he's going to do his test run here. Please, he says, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, drink, my lord. And then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, this must have been quite interesting, hold on a minute. I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Wow, that's an incredible generous offer. And then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough, take notice of this, and ran. Not only has this woman got strong biceps, but she ran, she ran to the well to draw water and drew for all ten of his camels, all ten camels. So this was an incredible woman doing this, but again, you have this, he prayed specifically. Wise. I think there's there's a time and a place where, again, we want to be certain about something. Lord, if this is your will, then, then Lord, make it, make it very, very evident. Lord, work in a way where it is very obvious, where there's clear indication that it's of you. In this case, he, he sort of prayed a specific prayer. And interesting, God listened and God blessed him seeing his heart to want to be sure he wanted to be certain. And I think when our heart is sincere and our heart is certain, that God in his grace at times, he will condescend. And he'll answer a specific prayer in a direct and a specific way to give us that assurance, to give us that indication. And I think it's just a beautiful thing of how his heart, you know, again, he didn't just pray generically, he prayed specifically and God answered specifically and rather quickly and it says, the man wondering at her, and you're thinking, my goodness, <laughs> watching her run down this well and back up and just watching this go on. It says, wondering at her, remain silent, this is interesting, so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. Again, this is just like us, Lord, I pray that if it be your will, that, you know, specifically, you know, this and this and this, and then, you know, God specifically does those things, and then we're watching going, wow, and then we go, I wonder if this is the Lord. I wonder if this could be God. You know, I just, and we all do that kind of stuff. You know, he prayed specifically, God answered specifically, and, and just much like you and I, he wondered, well, I wonder if this is the Lord. I think this might be the Lord. He wondered as to whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous. And so it was, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing 10 shekels of gold. And again, 10 shekels is about a year's wages. So these are expensive pieces of jewelry. And he said to her, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please. Is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter, again, he doesn't know this yet. I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son whom she bore to Nahor. In other words, she was the granddaughter of Abraham's brother which would make her, in essence, the second cousin to Isaac. And now he hears that she is from Abraham's family. And no doubt, again, his jaw was probably hanging. I cannot believe this. God's providence. God had done all these things and arranged all these things to have the right person, again, at the right place at the right time. And moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge at our home. And notice verse 26, the man, rightly so, bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, 
who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. And as for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. I love the way he says that as he bows down, he's giving worship and praise and thanksgiving. He realizes now that God has directed his steps, that the Lord has guided the whole process and ordered every little detail to get him to the right place at the right time, to have the right gal come out at the right moment, all these things. And I love what he says, as for me, verse 27, being on the way the Lord led me. You know, that is so often the way that God works when he's leading us. That as we are on the way, the Lord leads us. That as we are in motion, as we are, in a sense, moving forward in practical, measured steps of faith in the right direction, the right general direction that we believe God is leading us, as we're taking measured steps of faith and obedience in the right direction, Being practical, however, that as we're on the way, that's how the Lord leads us. Not when we're just sitting idle and doing nothing. That when the Lord is leading, there's a time to start taking practical, measured steps of faith in that direction. And as we're moving, that God leads us and steers us to right where we're supposed to be. Again, we apply this to other... You know, other areas, but yet somehow we fail to see the reality that this is how the Lord leads sometimes. On occasion, you'll talk to somebody, you know, I'll speak to somebody, well, I'm looking for a job right now. Well, that's great. You know, so are, what, do you, what do you do? Well, the Lord needs, the Lord's going to give me a job. Well, that's great. So are you putting in applications? You're making phone calls? No, no, no. I'm not doing that. The Lord's going to give me a job. Well, well, that's foolish. You know, when you're hungry and, and you need something to eat, you, interestingly enough, you get over and you go over to the refrigerator and you get out the jelly and you get out the bread and you get out the peanut butter and you put it on. And you, you, know, you don't just sit back and say, well, I'm hungry. The Lord is going to feed me. And, and I'm going to wait until the peanut butter comes out and the cap flies off and the bread pops open, the jelly goes on, and, and then the, the sandwich will float across the room and it will go into my mouth. And We don't apply that to other areas of life. We need to at times get moving. It's much easier if you've ever had a car that's stuck before. Have you ever noticed that if you have a car, you know, it gets stuck or it stalls out? It's much easier to steer the car once you get the thing moving a little bit. It's hard to steer a car that's stuck still. And a lot of times, again, I'm not saying we be presumptuous and run ahead and get foolish. But part of following the Lord's leading is when we sense the Lord is guiding in a direction, we got to start moving in that direction. And as we're moving, the Lord then begins to narrow down and to guide. And he closes this door and this door and this door and this door. And, he, and as we're on the way, the Lord just kind of leads us right ultimately to where we're supposed to be. And this is exactly what this servant realized. As I was in motion, the Lord led me right to the house, he says, of my master's brethren as I was in the process of going forward in God's will. And such will the Lord do in your life if you start moving in the direction that you know God is leading in often. Verse 28, so the young woman ran and told her father, excuse me, her mother's household these things, the testimony. And Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran out to meet the man by the well. And it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah saying, Thus the man spoke to me, recounting the story, 
that he went out to the man who stood by the camels waiting at the well, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? He says, For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. And the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and waters to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. And food was set before them to eat, And he said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. Again, it was typical to wait till after the meal to discuss business. That was typical cultural practice. But because of this amazing thing that's taking place, he says, I can't even eat until we talk about what's taking place and the whole reason that I'm here at your house. And again, they hearing about this are very curious as well. So they say, you know what? Speak on, tell us the story. Now, basically, we'll see from here down to verse 48 is just a recap as he tells them the story, but we'll read through it. It says, so he said to them, to the family now, the brother and the father and the mother, they're listening of Rebecca, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord, again, notice, has blessed my master greatly. He's become great and has given him flocks and herds of gold and female servants, and camels, and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to him when she was old. And to him he was given all that he has. So he's an heir to all this great wealth. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall take a wife, not take a wife from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my family, and take a wife for my son." And as I said to my master, perhaps the woman will not follow me. And he said, the Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way. And you shall take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. And he says, you will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family. For if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. Now, again, Keep in mind, they're hearing that Rebecca's hearing his whole story for the first time, which must just be astonishing her. Again, she's the one that's going to receive the proposal. Verse 42, and this day I came to the well and I prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water and it shall come to pass when a virgin comes out to draw water and I say to her, please give me a drink from your pitcher that she will say to me, drink, and I will draw for your camels also. And Rebecca's thinking, I can't believe I can't believe all this happened. You know, she was clueless as to what was going on, and yet God was working in her life too, and she didn't even realize the providential hand of God was at work through the whole thing. And he says, as she says, I will water your camels also. He says, let that be the woman whom Jehovah has appointed for my master's son. But before I finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebecca coming out with the pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down to the well and drew water. And I said, please let me drink. And she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank and gave the camels a drink also. And I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she informed him, the daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore, So I put the nose ring on her nose, that must have been comfortable, and the bracelets on her wrists, and I bowed my head and I worshipped and I blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham who had led me in the way of truth 
to date the daughter of my master's brother for his son. He now makes the closure. Now he says, in light of that, if you need more evidence, <laughs> he says, now, if you will deal kindly and true me with my master, then tell me. If not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or the left. And Laban and Bethuel, the eldest brother and the father, answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go and let her be your master's son's wife as the Lord has spoken. Notice, what else do you see taking place here? You also see here, I believe, as they hear the testimony of what God had done and how it all unfolded, you have the testimony of others giving confirmation that they can see the Lord's involvement in what's taking place. As they hear what's happening and they see and observe with their own eyes, notice they say, this is the Lord. This thing comes from the Lord. That is so evident that that's the Lord. It's so obvious that, that this is the Lord at work. And again, this is another important element or component, I think, of being led by the Lord. That as we pray and circumstantial evidence lines up, that's important. But as the circumstantial doors and all these things line up, I think it's important, too, that we do find others giving a confirming voice saying, you know what? Yeah, this is the Lord. I see the Lord in this. Not us driving, the Lord's leading me to do this. I think if the Lord's truly leading us to do something, there will be others that will look on and say, you know what, the Lord's at work in this. I can see God's hand on your life. I can tell that this is the Lord. What can I say? It's clear that this is God, that God's the one that's doing this. And I encourage you, look for that. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the Bible says things are established. And I think in our lives, as we look for God's leading, pray. Look for circumstantial evidence. Those are the invisible fingerprints of God. You have a desire to do something, you pray, great. As you're on the way, wait for the doors to open. Make sure the circumstances line up. Circumstances lined up that went in compliance with the prayers and the desires. And, and circumstances should line up. Circumstances aren't lining up. Don't go trying to bust through and, and break down doors and make things happen in the flesh. But even when the circumstances seem like they're lining up, also look as well for other people who can see and observe and watch the whole thing to say, you know what, yeah, amen, brother. Amen, sister, I can see that's the Lord. I, I, I recognize it. Whether I like it or not, I can tell that's God. And here you see that very thing. The thing comes from the Lord. Take her, they say. Let her be the wife of your master's son. And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words... Again, notice this guy, he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and clothing and gave them to Rebekah and also gave precious things to her and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night and arose in the morning and he said, send me away to my master. But her brother, notice, and the mother said, wait a minute, let the young woman stay with us you know, at least a few days, at least ten. After that, she may go. Now, that's very reasonable. Again, this guy showed up. This whole thing happens. They're saying, hey, we want to take your daughter, take your sister. We want to bring her 500 miles away, let her become the husband of somebody else. And, and, and they're complying, but he, the next day, within 24 hours, he says, okay, and we're ready to go. And, whoa, 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 at least have a little time to, 
you know, say goodbye, have a little farewell party. So they're in their natural emotions saying, wait, you know, at least give us 10 days. And he said, verse 56, do not hinder me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away so that I may go to my master. Again, what does the servant realize? Again, this may almost seem insensitive, but the servant realizes, look, if this is the Lord and you know it's the Lord, and I know it's the Lord, any extra moment that we delay is going to give opportunity for the devil and the weakness of our own flesh to begin to start rethinking the whole thing. Well, what if? And this, you know, what if that? And what if this? And, and he says, look, if it's the Lord, don't delay. Don't hinder me. You know, delay is often a tremendous effort of the devil. And when you clearly finally come to the place when you know something is God, and you better be dead on sure you know it's God first. But when you know something is God, don't be hindered. Don't delay because any pausing will cause the opportunity to start rethinking things. And logic and fears and concerns and all these other things. Can you imagine? 24 hours. It seems like God. Oh, take her. Everybody would have started second-guessing everything if they would have had 10 days to sit around and, and think about it. So it seems insensitive, but yet it's very spiritually wise when it comes to following God's leading. So look what they do, verse 57. So they said, well, we will call the young woman and ask her personally. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Look. This seems really hard and difficult, but she's the one that's going to have to travel to an unknown land. We'll ask her personally, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Again, what does she demonstrate? A tremendous heart of faith. A tremendous heart of faith. But she also demonstrates the fact that she was making her own personal decision. Notice, it was her decision to go and to marry this man. She had to be the one to ultimately personally decide. At the end of the day, I think it's, it's an important thing because, again, there's that willing participation. The servant's not coercing her. Nobody's forcing her. She is willingly complying and embracing the opportunity. And, again, when the Lord is leading, let me just say this. When the Lord is leading, I don't think people have to be coerced. When God is leading, people will willingly participate and comply without pressure tactics and manipulation and, and you know strong emotional coercion and all that kind of stuff. And again, as we look at this whole thing as a picture of following the Lord's leading, and we look at this whole thing as a picture, again, of the father trying to find a bride for his son and all that kind of stuff. It, it all plays out very beautifully because, again, the servant goes out. He speaks of the son. He talks about all the glory. He proposes the opportunity to enter into a relationship with the son, but then leaves it at that. He leaves the decision with her. He's not forcing her. He's not coercing her. And again, I'm not saying it is wrong. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it's wrong to at times to urge or to compel people to respond to entering into a relationship with Jesus and marrying Jesus Christ, becoming a part of the bride of Christ. But again, at the end of the day, I don't think we have to coerce people and manipulate people and emotionally create this environment where we're 
overly, almost like a sales pitch, beseeching someone because we could do a greater disservice to them if they're just responding out of an emotional reaction rather than truly understanding the reality. Listen, gang, this was a faith journey. <laughs> this, this woman was going to leave behind her family and everything she knew in a complete act of faith to go to some distant land and to give up everything to go marry some man who she had never seen with her eyes. It was a total choice of faith, but it was a choice that she had to make. And because of that, the opportunity is presented, but they say, look, ask her personally, and she says, I will go. And again, that is such an important thing because the truths of the gospel are presented to us, but we have to decide. We have to make the decision. Will we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, or are we not going to accept him? But it's a decision of the will out of the faith that's in our heart to want to pursue that opportunity. And I think this is very beautiful to see taking place here, again, because it not only is a beautiful picture of the typology of Jesus and us becoming his bride and so forth as the servant and the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us, but it's a really important aspect, too, of us when we're trying to follow the Lord. You know, re remember these things. Again, just kind of have a desire to do your master's will. Desire to do the master's will. And then... Pray specifically and start to move forward in a practical, measured steps of faith in the direction that God's leading. Start moving in that direction. Being on the way the Lord led me. Look for circumstantial confirmation. Make sure that the circumstances start lining up, that doors are opening up and circumstances begin to you know, coincide with the desires and the prayers and those kind of things. Look for the confirmation of other people. Look for people to say, hey, it's evident this is the Lord. When you know it's God, don't delay. Don't get hindered. When you recognize it's God, walk forward in obedience and know that if it's the Lord, you don't have to force and coerce and manipulate other people. If the Lord's in it, then people will follow along. And the people that God's called to be a part of it will follow along. And you don't have to coerce and manipulate and heavy hand. This is what God's doing. And if you have to, you are striving in the flesh. If you have to twist somebody's arm to make them get saved and pray the sinner's prayer, or you have to twist somebody's arm to get them to do something that you're so confident that God is doing, I would just say, be careful of that. Be very careful. She willingly complies and goes through with this. And I think it's a great example of those very things. Well, we're going to have to just finish up that chapter and we'll we'll move ahead next week. But let's let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the things it it teaches us and illustrates for us from the scriptures. Lord, thank you for the lessons you lay out for us and may they stay with us and Lord, may they be a lamp for our feet and a light for our path as we walk with you in this next week and in this next stage of our life. Lord, we love you, we praise you. And we thank you for giving the light and truth of your word to us in Jesus' name.